The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good morning. Well, good to see you all. Take your Bibles as uh, we have some, if we can have some of the ushers help us, some of the men help us distribute the study sheets this morning. Open your Bibles to John chapter 1. So last time we met, two weeks ago, I wrapped up the study on on the marks of success and on our discipleship and the tests of our discipleships. And we looked at many, many subjects, uh, matters there, and uh, took about a year and a half, I think, uh, to get through that series with me teaching every other Sunday. So it, uh, we're going to embark on another series today. This series, <coughs> I don't know how long it'll take because uh, I've, right now I've got about 20 lessons on this subject matter. But I have a feeling that, that I'm going to add many more uh, as, as we delve deeper and deeper into this subject because I'm not sure that you can never reach the end of, of, of studying this subject, and we're going to study on the grace of God. And that's quite an encompassing subject when we talk about the grace of God. So we're going to begin that today, and the Lord will lead us as to where we go with it. So let's look at John chapter 1 and begin at verse number 10 uh, here. We read, He was in the world, and the world was made by him, And the world knew him not. Now, of course, this is referring to Jesus. Verse 11. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. I want you to pay close attention to that. Nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace." For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the beautiful, wonderful grace that we have that was so freely given to us. And Father, as we study this subject on the grace of God, I pray that you would enlighten us, that you would teach us, that you would instruct us. Guide all that we'll say today to to glorify and honor you and to be spoken in truth. We ask you to bless it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Look again at verse 17 with me. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now, of course, we can all say that we know that Moses didn't, didn't give us the law. Moses didn't write the law. He penned the law. Uh, or actually God penned the law originally, the original set of the law before Moses broke them. God himself penned the law. God wrote the law. God established the law. But Moses was the vessel that delivered us the law. And we see that Jesus Christ, 
was uh, the, the vessel by which God delivered us grace. And we're going to talk about that grace. Grace is a beautiful word. It really is. It's used uh, in our English vocabulary to describe beauty, to describe elegance, to, to describe uh, refinery and things such as that. It's a word that implies perfection. It's a word that, that implies uh, the, the best of everything. So today we're going to begin studying into the tremendous depth of the grace of God. But I think probably the very first thing we need to do is to, in a biblical sense, in a theological sense, define grace. Exactly what is grace? So number one, our point, our point number one is grace defined. Uh, there's a lot of confusion over this word grace. A lot of misinterpretation uh, among the many professing believers in the world today concerning this, the theo- theological term of this word grace. Now, as we're going to d- discover as we study through this, we, we, when we talk about grace, we need to establish two, one of two things. It's either we're talking about the grace unto salvation or grace for living, grace unto life. And we're going to look at both of those as we study through grace in the months to come. Uh, we're going to look at not only the, the grace that we're going to discuss today, which is the grace that was given to us by God unto our salvation and sanctification. And further down the road, we'll look at some of the graces that God has given us for our everyday life. But today, I'd like to to begin by defining, giving you the Christian uh, theological definition. Grace is the free, you might want to write this down, the free and unmerited favor or beneficence of God. It is a state of sanctification established by God. But we can, we can really summarize grace in a Christian sense uh, when we talk about the grace unto salvation as the, the free and unmerited favor of God. Now, from both of the definitions I, I just gave you, it's clear to see that grace is from and given solely by God. The, the grace of, of salvation and sanctification comes from no other source other than God the Father himself. You might say, well, that's a very fundamental fact. It is a very fundamental fact, but it's not understood by many people. Uh, the church, for instance, cannot impart grace to you. We can't do that today. We can instruct you in grace, which is what we're doing. We can encourage you in grace. We could admonish you to grace, but we can't, we can't establish you in grace. Um, only God the Father can do these things. We read in John chapter 1, verse 17, we read it just a moment ago. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, We read, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. In other words, that faith and that grace is is not of yourself, and that not of yourselves. 
It is the gift of who? Gift of God. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 2, Paul writes, Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So grace is given to us by God. It's imparted to us by God. It's established in us by God and by God alone. Now, of a truth, you and I can and should exhibit grace to one another. We should, we should exhibit the same grace to each other that God has exhibited to us uh, on a daily basis. I read a story about this, which really pictures what God did in salvation. It's, it's, it's a very, very good picture. Let me read the story to you. A story is told about... Fiorello LaGuardia, who, when he was mayor of New York City during the worst days of the Great Depression and all of World War II, was called among adoring New Yorkers the little flower because he was only five foot four and always wore a carnation in his lapel. He was a colorful character who used to ride the New York City fire trucks. He would raid speakeasies with the police department. He would take entire orphanages to baseball games. And whenever the New York newspapers were on strike, he would go on the radio and read the Sunday funnies to the children. One bitterly cold night in January of 1935, the mayor turned up at a night court that served the poorest ward of the city. LaGuardia dismissed the judge for the evening and took over the bench himself. Within a few few moments, a tattered old woman was brought before him, charged with stealing a loaf of bread. She told LaGuardia that her daughter's husband had deserted her, her daughter was sick, and her two grandchildren were starving. But the storekeeper from whom the bread was stolen refused to drop the charges. It's a real bad neighborhood, Your Honor, the man told the mayor. She's got to be punished to teach other people around here a lesson. LaGuardia sighed. He turned to the woman and he said, I've got to punish you. The law makes no exceptions. Ten dollars or ten days in jail. But even as he pronounced sentence, the mayor was already reaching into his pocket. He extracted a bill and tossed it into his famous sombrero, saying, Here is the $10 fine which I now remit. And furthermore, I am going to fine everyone in this courtroom 50 cents for living in a town where a person has to steal bread so that her grandchildren can eat. Mr. Bailiff, collect the fines and give them to the defendant. So the following day, the New York City newspapers reported that $47.50 was turned over to a bewildered old lady who had stolen a loaf of bread to feed her starving grandchildren. Fifty cents of that amount being contributed by the red-faced grocery store owner, while some 70 petty criminals, people with traffic violations, and New York City policemen each of whom had just paid 50 cents for the privilege of doing so, gave the mayor a standing ovation. 
Now, this is a very good picture of not only the grace that God exhibited to us in salvation, but also of the grace that each of us need to exhibit to each other. I mean, in this story, the the mayor had no choice but to pass sentence. The law was clear. The law had been broken. It had been violated. And he could not overturn the law. And he told this dear lady, I have to punish you. Isn't that the situation with you and I? Even though we are God's elect children, we have broken the law. And God must punish lawbreakers. So the, the, the mayor told the lady, I have to punish you. Ten dollars or ten days in jail. But as he, as he passed that sentence, what did he do? He reached in his pocket and he paid the, the fine himself. What did God do? One day on a hill called Calvary, he, in the form of man, he gave his life on the cross for you and I. He remitted our sins. He paid the debt himself. That's grace. We didn't deserve that. We didn't merit that. Nothing we had ever done, did, or could do was worthy of that. Yet that's the love and the grace that God exhibited to us. But I also want you to see in this story... The judge then told everybody else, you're going to give some money to this thing. You're going, to, you're going to contribute to this. You're going to show grace to this woman yourself. So when we talk about grace, we're not talking about some petty little thing that just happened and is gone. We need to understand the depth of God's grace to us and the responsibility we have to exhibit grace to each other. Now, in the context of our study, the grace we are discussing is of a spiritual nature and can only be given by God. Matter of fact, my ability to show grace to you comes from God. I, could, I couldn't exhibit grace toward you. You can't exhibit grace toward me unless God gives us grace. It cannot be earned. God's grace cannot be earned. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 9 states, not of works. Lest any man should boast. The grace of God does not come by works. We can't earn it. There isn't enough good that we could possibly do to, to earn God's grace, God's favor. It cannot be purchased. <laughs> Romans chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy cannot be purchased. So many people in this world who are who are well off or well to do will come to a church and will put their money in the plate and go away feeling justified because they've given something to the Lord. You can't buy God's favor. You can't buy God's grace. All the money in the world cannot buy salvation. It's a it's a gift of God. It's given by God. Grace is that spiritual work of God by which he elects and redeems us unto himself. Allow me to quote from the commentary notes of John Gill concerning God's grace. He writes, Notwithstanding the children of Israel had sinned against him in such a manner as they had, yet he should show favor, grace, and mercy to them in pardoning their sins. And it should be distributed, not according to any merits of theirs, 
but according to his sovereign will and pleasure. And not to all, but to whomsoever he thought fit. And in this would be seen his glory. And so it is with respect to grace and mercy as displayed in Christ to sinful men. It is not in proportion to their deserts, but according to the purpose and goodwill of God. And that not unto all, but unto some whom he has appointed. Not unto wrath, but unto salvation by Jesus Christ. And which is to the glory of his grace. And the more enlarged view men have of this the more clearly and fully does the goodness and glory of God pass before them. So we see from, from the, the great theologian John Gill in his notes that election, the grace that we have comes by the election of God. It's, it's, God, it's according to God's will and purpose. It's not according to our works. It's not according to our merits. It's not according to, to our uh, lineage or heritage or anything such as that. It's according to the will and purpose of God and God alone. He answers to no one for this and he makes no exceptions to this. <laughs> so first, this morning we see that, that grace is the sovereign right and privilege of God. And it's given to sinful Undeserving men and women, according to his good will and unto his glory and his pleasure, it is bestowed upon men. So when we, when we talk about grace this morning, when we define grace, we see it as the free and unmerited favor of God. But number two this morning, I want to look at grace diagrammed. Pardon me for a moment. Grace diagrammed. <clears throat> now, referring back to our definition we gave earlier of, of grace as being the free and unmerited favor of God, there are two distinct elements of this grace that I want us to see. The first one is this. Grace is free. God's grace is free. In Romans chapter 3, Paul writes in verses 21 through 24, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon, upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, we all understand that the word free means free, right? But is there really anything free? Any ideas? Is anything really free? How many of you say no? Raise your hand. How many of you say yes? Raise your hand. How many of you don't know? Raise your hand. <laughs> nothing's really free. My daddy taught me that when I was a boy. He said, son, nothing's really free. We used to see these commercials. Free turkey, free turkey, free turkey. Dad said, ah, 
free territory. Nothing's really free. It may be free to you, but it costs somebody something. Huh? Now, grace is the free gift of God to you. But it wasn't free to Christ, was it? It wasn't free to God the Father. He's the one that paid the price of salvation. And it can only be given by him. Once, once it's purchased by God, only God can give it. Huh? The free turkeys. Whoever buys the free turkeys can give them away to whoever he wants under whatever terms he wants. You come buy a car, I'll give you a turkey. Well, I can buy a turkey cheaper than a car, so I wouldn't do that. But if, you know, you know what I'm saying. So only God can, can give away this free gift. Only God controls salvation. Only God controls eternal life. And only he can give it. Now, here's where many people err concerning grace. You could use the term grace with regards to salvation, and you would be completely accurate in doing so. However, salvation is only one byproduct of God's grace. Now, this is where I want us to understand. Salvation is only one part of God's grace. And as we go through this study, we're going to see that there are many, many, many more benefits to the grace of God than just eternal life. But it is, you, you'd, be accurate, you'd be perfectly accurate in saying grace is, is, it leads unto salvation because it does. I've heard preachers say that the grace we enjoy caused Jesus' very blood. And I would agree with that statement and its intent. Yet, the correct statement would be that the salvation we enjoy was given to us by virtue of the sacrifice of Jesus according to the measure of grace given unto us as the elect of God. I made a statement once, and someone was just, they, they came to me later and said, that's the most profound statement I've ever heard. I said, thank you very much. No, I didn't. But I said this, Jesus did not die for you. He died for the will of the Father. Do you understand that? He died for the Father. His love for God, his obedience to the will of God compelled him to die on the cross. The fact that we are God's elect children is a byproduct of that. So we need to understand, yes, he did die for us, and you'd be perfectly accurate to say, Jesus died for me. You'd be perfectly accurate to say that. But he, he didn't die for you because you were worthy of dying for. He didn't die for you because you deserved him to die. He died for you because it was the will of the Father. And he was in obedience to the Father's will. He obeyed the will of the Father even unto his own death. So we need to understand that. You see, the grace we enjoy is an attribute of our eternal God and existed in God from eternity past. <laughs> grace did not begin at the cross. And it does not end at the grave. Grace uh, is God's to give, and he gives it freely to those whom he chose, whom he has chosen. Ephesians 1, verse 4, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Grace began at the, at, at, an eternity past. It didn't start at Calvary. 
Calvary was, was in the pathway of God's grace. It was, a, it was a part of God's exercise of grace. You see, if we begin to, if we can condition our mind to believe that Jesus, that I'm so important that Jesus died on the cross for me, uh, we take away from God's glory. We make ourselves more important than God. Jesus died for the, for the will of the Father. He died in obedience to the Father. And, and my salvation was in the Father's will. Therefore, his death on the cross included my salvation. But I'm not the center of it all. Many today misplace the emphasis on God's need to redeem our soul. And this has led to a doctrine that places more importance on the creature than the creator. It has produced a generation of preachers and believers that profess to teaching that things such as this. God has done all that he can do to save you. There is nothing more he can do. He now patiently waits for you to decide if you will accept him or not. That, was, that statement was made by a pastor of a Baptist church. Now there's some error in that statement. If God cannot do anything more for me until I make a decision, then answer this question. What determines my salvation? Jesus' will or mine? If you, if you sit there and say, God has done all he can do for you, he can do nothing more to save you, then that means the final decision is yours, not his. And I'm sorry, but that's heresy. If it is my will decision that determines my salvation, then salvation is not of God, it is not of Christ, it is not of grace. It rests in my own power to decide for or against God. And if, if you can find anything that's more heretical than that, I'd be interested in seeing it. My Bible tells me that the new birth is by God's will. Not by my will. In John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13, we read it a few moments ago. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Furthermore, I don't know about their God, but my God is able to save all that he intends to save. And not one drop of Jesus' blood will have been shed in vain. You see, by their doctrine, Jesus died for all men. Therefore, all those who go to hell, he paid a price for, for nothing. He wasted his blood. Now, that wouldn't be very intelligent, would it? No, God, God saves everyone he intended to save. Jesus died to save those that God intended to save. Not one drop of his blood was wasted. It will, it will fulfill the purpose of God. In John chapter 6, verses 37 through 40, we read the words of our Savior. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, 
but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And we know from Scripture that everything that God wills is done. In Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 11 we read, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Listen, (laughs) I don't know about the God of the man who made that statement I read earlier. But my God does not sit in heaven like a helpless suitor waiting on bated breath for me to decide with my own free will to choose him or not. No, he has set it in his will to redeem me and redeem me to himself. He did. And for all those whom he has chosen to save, he will save them. That's what Peter said. Not, not any shall perish, but all shall come to repentance. So grace is free. But then, secondly, this morning, I want us to see that grace is unmerited. God's grace is unmerited. So now, given everything I've said so far, (laughs) you might ask, how does God decide who he will save? Now listen to me carefully. I'm about to give you some very profound theology. You have to read between all the lines. You have to read every commentary ever written. You have to read every theologian that ever wrote. And here's the answer. I don't know. I don't know. What did God ever see in me? Nothing. So why did he choose me? It was his sovereign will. I don't know. Now, if I was making the choices, I wouldn't choose someone like me. Oh, no, 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 no. I'd have looked at me 34 years ago and I'd have said, you can go burn in hell. And, and that's, by the way, where I deserve to be. That's what I deserve. So I got to be careful and you have to be careful as I stand here today not to get too proud of myself and not to start thinking that I'm somebody special. No, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. That's all I am. And, and, and the words I speak to you today do not come from my own wisdom. They come, they come from the wisdom that God has given me. They come from the illumination that he has placed in my heart. They come from his Holy Spirit which has taught me these things. The truth is, I don't know why God chooses or how he chooses. But furthermore, I don't need to know. I don't need to know. You see, some reject the doctrine of election because they cannot find any justice in it. They cannot find any logical sense of how God can choose one and not another without demonstrating partiality. And that's what they'll say. God is not a, God, the Bible says God does not, is not a partial God. He doesn't show partiality. <laughs> it might be of interest for you to note that in all the words of Scripture, we can only find three references that uses the words partiality or respecter of persons. Only three verses. So before we build a whole 
doctrine, or before we reject an entire doctrine around a philosophy, don't you think it deserves more than three references of Scripture? Acts chapter 10, verse 34 states, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. However, the context of this verse is, dealing, is, is concerning God's dealing between the Jews and the Gentiles. The second reference is 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 21. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe the things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. However, the context of this verse is having to do with church leaders, pastors and elders when it comes to dealing with the people. That we don't show partiality to one brother over another. And the third reference we find is James chapter 3 and verse 17 where it states, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. However, the context of this verse is dealing with God granting wisdom to his saints. And that's it, my friends. Yet... Many reject God's doctrine. They reject the entire, the entire foundation of salvation. They reject it all over, over, over God not showing partiality. When at no time and no reference in scripture does God use that term dealing with the election of saints or the, or the, the, the salvation of men's souls. On the other hand, we can find 70 references to man finding favor in the sight of God. Now, anyone who was a parent here this morning can understand what I'm talking about. We have children, and we might want to say, well, I'm a, I'm a good parent, and I don't prefer one child over another. Yeah, right. You can, you can, you can deceive yourself with that statement all you want. You know you do. It's, it's just the way it is. My brothers and sisters, my brother and sister used to tell me, you get away with everything. We didn't get away with nothing. And that's because I was mama's baby. I was her last. I'm still her baby. And my brother and sisters had better not pick on me. We understand this concept. So the argument that election cannot be true because God does not play favoritism just doesn't hold any water. However, this does not mean that God plays favoritism in election. Again, the truth is that how and why God elects is beyond our ability to understand and comprehend. We should simply, because our, our, our understanding is limited. And we can't see any justice in it, but God is sovereign and he's completely just. We know that he's completely just in all that he does. We must simply accept this by faith, realizing that God is in control and, and will do all things according to his own will and good pleasure. And this includes his sovereignty and grace. There is nothing we can or have done to merit grace. Yet... We have been given grace by God, and that should be sufficient for you and me. 
I don't know why he elects, but I'm glad he did. That's all I can say. So what does this mean to us? So let me close this morning's lesson by making this statement. God's grace is the favor that gives us the advantages necessary to know and to seek and to follow our Savior. Again, God's grace is the favor that gives us the advantages necessary to know and to seek and to follow our Savior. So let us, let's dismiss this morning. Let us leave here with the knowledge that we have been given the grace of God by our election unto salvation according to the will of God to bring glory and honor to his name. And that is the definition of grace. All right, folks, thanks for being here today. Let's dismiss and we'll start next hour. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.